Good morning. Certainly is good to have you here and trust for God's blessing upon our study in the Word today. Have you all received the outlines that we have here? And thanks for Joe and the Urbasic young men for passing the outline to us. We'll follow this outline as we go along in the message today. Today and next Sunday is an introduction to this series of messages that we'll have on the heart of God. And the introduction is to provide for us a basis from which we will be thinking about the heart of God and what's in the heart of God. Other messages will be preaching from not direct quotes as far as the heart of God is concerned, but rather stories things that are in the Scripture that tell us and reveal to us what is in God's heart. We can say, I love you. This means something special to the one to whom it is said. But the meaning is even greater when we say, I love you with all my heart. When we really want to get to the essence of something, the most important point of an issue, the most vital part of a project, we often say, let's get to the heart of the matter. When we are hurt so deeply, so very deeply, particularly in a matter of love, we may see, say, I have a broken heart. The Tin Man in the Wizard of Oz says, Now I know I have a heart. I can feel it breaking. We have many sayings involving the heart, a heart of gold, stealing one's heart away, a heart's desire, hard-hearted, your heart goes out to someone, and many, many more about the heart. The heart is far more than the faithful muscle that beats two and a half billion times in a normal lifespan, pumping a million barrels of blood. That's 42 million gallons of blood around our bodies without our even thinking or prompting our heart to do its work. The heart is the focus of one's deepest thoughts, affections, attachments, loyalties, and love. I'll say that again. The heart is the focus of one's deepest thoughts, affections, attachments, loyalties, and love. The Bible tells us of the importance of our heart. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the Lord repeating the importance of that command in Matthew 22. Proverbs 4 tells us, Keep your heart or guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. This familiar salvation verse, If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth... Confession is made unto salvation. That's Romans 10, 9 and 10. I've heard it called the TNT of the Bible. To the young church in Thessalonica, the Holy Spirit writes through Paul, May the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for us and we for you, so that He may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before God the Father at the coming of of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Scripture also tells us to look into our hearts. 
It says that God looks into our hearts and knows what is there. In 1 Samuel, the time for Samuel to anoint the new king of Israel and the handsome older sons of Jesse are brought before him. And Samuel is certain that one of these is the one. And the Lord says, no, none of these are. And this is the quote that's given to Samuel. The Lord does not see as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, we're told the Lord will bring to light both the hidden things of darkness and make open or manifest, easily seen, the counsels of the heart. The Lord looks into our hearts. In Acts chapter 1, Peter says, You, Lord, which know the hearts of all men. And then the Lord takes this authority onto himself in Jeremiah 17. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Every man is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. In Luke, Jesus said unto them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your heart. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? God looks into our hearts and knows what's there. According to the scripture, what is in our hearts is awful, sinful, desperately wicked. The quoted verse from Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? In Matthew and Mark, Mark 7 is particularly the chapter. The Lord says, What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. It's an awful summation of what's inside our hearts. But God has graciously put something else in our hearts and it's revealed to us in the book of Ecclesiastes. God has made everything beautiful in his time and God has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. God has put a longing inside our hearts. There is inside this deep area of affection and of thought, and of desire, something beyond what we sense with our hands, our eyes, our nose, our mouth, and our ears. This life is not all there is. There is something, there is someone who brings meaning, significance, order in the chaos of human earthly existence. And this longing is answered in the person and work of our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. He changes our hearts, cleans our hearts, gives us all new things, including our hearts. It says, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. It says this in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. In Jeremiah 24 
It says, I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. In 2 Corinthians, we're told about the new creation we have. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, all things become new, including our hearts. This is a brief look into our hearts with the Bible being our guide. We now have the opportunity and task before us in this series of messages during the next several weeks of looking into God's heart and finding out what's there. You could think to yourself this morning, that's awfully presumptuous, Phil. A creature looking into their Creator's heart and making an examination of what's there. We're the patient. We need a doctor. The patient doesn't inspect the doctor. It's the other way around. Well, this is what's happened. Happily, gladly, praisingly, God has given us direct statements about what's in His heart. He also has given us stories that reveal what's in His heart. There are many verses which speak of the love of God that flows from His heart toward us. May God bless this message and the messages of others that will be on this series, The Heart of God. May we pray, please. Father, we thank You for your willingness to open up your heart to us. You do it in several passages and with several stories. We thank you, dear God, for letting us know what's in your heart. Uh, Andy prayed it this morning. Open our hearts to what you have for us this morning in this message and in the messages to follow. Thank you for the Spirit of God who takes what we say and brings it before others in a way that they will hear, understand, their mind being open and their heart being available to what it is that you have to say today. Thank you, dear God, for your loving heart. And pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Genesis chapter 6, please. The first mention of something in Scripture is usually very important. The first mention of the heart of God is in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. Follow along with me, please. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thought of man's heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. The first thing we find in the heart of God is grief. The word grief here refers to the loss of a loved one, the grieving heart of a bereaved spouse, or of a parent, or of a child. God loves the people of the world. The heart of God loves people. The heart of God longs for the relationship that exists among the three persons of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And God wants this kind of relationship to be experienced by all men and women in His creation. 
Think of the first scenes that we have with the Lord walking in the pristine garden in the evening with the man and the woman that He's created with uninhibited, unhindered conversation with God exchanging spoken thoughts, ideas, experiences, joys, thrills, and discoveries that this sinless couple, this sinless man and woman, Adam and Eve, are daily discovering. Prior to the fall, God wants that kind of relationship open, clear, loving, honest for all of us. And even more importantly, God wants that kind of relationship for Himself. That's why there's such grief in God's heart when it gets broken here in chapter 6 of Genesis. The ecstatic reality of being with the living Creator God, who He is, what He's done, how much He loves us, was all to be poured into the relationship between God and people. But the awfulness of sin entered into this longed-for reality. And there was an awful impediment in the relationship that Adam and Eve could not hide from, could not cover, could not excuse or blame their way out of. Only God could redeem, repair, restore, renew, and regenerate this relationship. God would now teach Adam and Eve the basis for this new, better, greater relationship through the redemption price to be paid by an innocent substitute that would suffer the deadly punishment for the sin committed by them through the shedding of the blood of this substitute. Now that takes place in the Garden of Eden. God takes animals and He slays them. There is death in the Garden of Eden. The death of an innocent substitute. Animals that are used by God to then make coverings for Adam and Eve. And He is teaching them there. The basis of this new relationship that you and I have is going to be through the shed blood of an innocent substitute. Adam and Eve are wrapped in the covering of the substitute's death in their place. And God did this over and over and over and over again through all the Old Testament. Whether it's Abel's lamb or Isaac's ram or the Passover lamb or Elijah's bullocks, whether it's the burnt, the peace, the sin, the trespass offering, whether it's the daily offerings, morning and evening of the lamb at the temple, Whatever the offerings are, over and over again, God is teaching and saying, there is only one way for this heart relationship to be restored. And it is by the death, the shedding of blood of an innocent substitute to bring about a restoration of this relationship. God in those Old Testament pictures is trying to get people to see there will be one that will come. And that one is His Son. God always had His eyes and heart on the real substitute, His Son, Jesus Christ. We are privileged today to have a greater relationship with God than Adam and Eve ever did. Let's make sure we have that again. We are privileged today to have a greater relationship 
with God than Adam and Eve ever did. Our relationship with God rests on the finished, full, final, foundation work of Jesus Christ and the cross. We are God's children by faith in Jesus Christ and all He has done for us and all He is doing for us right now. Now, the Father's unbridled love, delight, laughter, and joy in His children flows to us, and we get to bask in the loving glow of Him who loves us so. Now is the experience of being in the counsels of God through our prayers. Now is the thrill of worshiping the King of kings and the Lord of lords, but not with hands and knees that are shaking and a heart that's pounding with fear. All of that is gone. Now is the time of our being joyful as being an heir of God and a joint heir with Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. He says we are His friends. That's the relationship we now have with the Son of God. And the Holy Spirit is so intimate that He dwells within us. He ministers His comfort, guidance, warmth, illumination that only the Holy Spirit can provide. This is the relationship that God has in mind for us. And He is grieved. Not just for our loss, but for His loss. I think the ladies of the assembly have a much better grasp on this than we men. They've intentionally studied in their Bible class here on Thursday about lament. A portion of yesterday's retreat by the ladies was on lament. And the ability of ourselves to lament. We live in a world today where it would do us well to lament what is occurring. How can our hearts not go out to the conflict that's taking place in the Middle East today? And the images of these children and of these adults killing one another because of the millennia of sin that is piled up. Of nation hating nation and of people hating people. And we're a witness to such things today. Can we not lament all that sin has done? And God speak to, speaks to us in the first place here in Scripture. What's in my heart is deep grief, deep lament. I long for a relationship with my people. Oh, how his heart yearns for, longs for, aches for this glorious God-provided relationship with us today. God loves sinners 
This passage that we've read from Genesis chapter 6 is during the time of Noah. God loves sinners. He looked at the world in the days of Noah and finds an entire race consumed with evil, violence, and corruption. God is grieving over the lost ones He's created. And they're lost for all eternity. Lost in the throes of hell and He is grieving. God has had great witnesses during this time. The great prophet Enoch who walked with God and pronounces prophecies that are to be seen in the thousands of years to come. In the book of Jude, this is what the prophet Enoch is quoted as saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of His saints to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against God. That's Jude 14 and 15. That's Enoch speaking just seven generations from the beginning of the creation of of the world. And now he leaps ahead to the time when God will, when the Lord Jesus Christ will come back to this earth. And he says he's coming back with ten thousands, not ten thousand, ten thousands. The plural of that. His church is coming back with the King of kings and Lord of lords to execute judgment upon this earth. Angelic beings will do His bidding and will go through the fields and they'll reap out the harvest that will be here. Those that are His own, He'll bring into His harvest house and those that are not, they'll be thrown into the furnace and burned. It's just so awful and so terrible. And yet Enoch sees this great prophecy and he prophesies that to the people that are contemporaries of Noah at that time. This violent, evil, corrupt time in the history of the world. And God gives to them a witness. What a mighty and bold prophet Enoch was. The first person raptured into heaven. People went and looked for him. They couldn't find this holy man who was drawn home to be with the Lord. God gave another mighty witness during this time. His name is Noah. Noah preached righteousness for 120 years. He invested his time, his money, and his energy in creating a place of salvation for people to go into during the coming judgment of the flood. He was building an ark, and he preached during that 120-year period. It's the worst evangelistic campaign in the history of the world, 120 years of preaching, and only eight people received the message. Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives, and those are the only ones that enter into the ark. Let's not be discouraged with preaching the gospel, dear ones. Don't be discouraged in giving a witness and you say it doesn't seem to have any effect. Go back to dear Noah in his time, faithfully preaching the gospel, not just doing that, but investing time, energy, money, risking ridicule, mockery by those that were doing him, building a boat in the middle of a desert where it's never rained from the sky. And yet he boldly proclaims this is the way of salvation to run into the provision that God has made into the ark. That's the way you can be saved. Run into the ark and you'll be saved. The patience of God for hundreds of years, the long suffering of God, the grace of God is made available. It says Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. The salvation of God is offered freely. And yet there was the rejection 
of nearly all mankind. With our first look into the Lord's heart, we see His grief, the loss of loved ones and their rejection of that offer of salvation. The heart of God had grief back then, and the heart of God has grief in it today, this morning. For there are some who have heard of the salvation that God offers today. Folks who have heard of the salvation available by faith in Jesus Christ, the ark into whom we can run today, our place of safety and salvation, the one who took the storm of God's wrath, the drowning flood of the sins of mankind, withstanding the beating and battering by sinful man upon his body and experiencing the judgment of a holy God for nothing that Jesus Christ did, but for all that we have done. And it grieves God's heart today that you, dear friend, have not come into the person of salvation and safety. You've not entered into Jesus Christ. The people in Noah's day were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, living their lives as if there was no judgment to come, ignoring the good news of the ark and its salvation from the judgment of the flood. Today, are you living that kind of a life as if there is no judgment to come? I'm telling you, there is a judgment to come. There are several judgments that are pictured for us in the Scripture, but the ultimate judgment is the great white throne judgment. There are a set of books that are there. The Lamb's book of life is opened. And if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, you have salvation through Jesus Christ. Other books are open, and if your name is not in the Lamb's book of life, then you're going to be judged by those things that you have done. Rather than your sins being forgiven by a holy God and you receiving the salvation that's available for you, you are instead judged by the things that you have done. Grief is in the heart of God. God does not want to lose you in this judgment. He does not want to suffer grief over you. You have the opportunity to Relieve God's grief over you today by confessing your sins, your need of a Savior and receiving Jesus Christ today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. So first of all, we have grief in the heart of God. Now turn to Psalm 33, please. This is God sharing with us what's in His heart. Psalm 33.11 says, The counsel of the Lord stands forever, and the thoughts of His hearts to all generations. We find out in this verse that God has plans. He has an agenda. He has His immutable will that stands forever. The wonder of it all is that God has told us portions of His plans about us, about mankind, about the universe. The Creator has communicated to us His created beings and shared about His sovereign character and plan. How wonderfully marvelous it is of God, the Creator, 
to share his plans with us, what's in his heart. Now back in First Chronicles 17, if you turn back there, First Chronicles 17. David tells us about this in God's heart in First Chronicles 17, 19. Here's the setting. David has a desire to build a dwelling place for the Ark of the Covenant. David says, I live in a house of cedar, but the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And the prophet Nathan says, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. Then Nathan the prophet receives a vision from the Lord. The Lord tells David, It's not you, David, who will build the house of the Lord, but it will be your son who will build the house of the Lord. In response, David prays and tells about the heart of God in 1 Chronicles 17.19. Let's read this together. This is David replying to what he has found out about God's plans. For your servant's sake, O Lord, and according to your own heart, you have done all this greatness in making known all these great things. David, your heart's desire is to build me a a temple, a temple where I can dwell. Here's what the plan is, David. You're not going to build the temple. Your son is. And David is overwhelmed by this fact. God's revealing his plan to me. He's telling me what the plans are. Yes, I want to build, I, I, I can do this. I, I can gather all of the materials together for my son. And David does that. I can make arrangements for those who will do the building. And David does that. David arranges the singers and he arranges the Levites. It's all recorded for us in the books of Chronicles. And David is just humbled. He's saying, how wonderful of you to share what's in your heart with me. David is told a portion of God's sovereign plans. David's son will build the temple and David marvels at what's in the heart of God. You have plans that cannot be changed and you've told me all about them. And all of this is according to what's inside your heart. God is telling us His plans. He loves us so very much. I think of the humility of the great Creator and a willingness to share His plans. I suppose we have experiences like this Daughters to mother and sons to father. I can recall my dad sitting down with me as a young man and trying to explain the importance of finance to me. (laughs) Oh my, how I wish I'd listened to my father. (laughs) I was in love with a girl named Heather. And love was enough to get us through everything. (laughs) My dad being so much more profoundly wise than me. I look back on that and my dad seeking to share with me as fully and as intimately as he could in an area of my life that he knew would bring problems and difficulties and conflict. And now here is our great father God sharing His sovereign plans which cannot be changed. And that's how much He loves us. Dear one, God loves us so much. 
from his heart that he has shared his plans with us. God's plan is to provide a way of salvation through the death of his son on our behalf. Jesus became our substitute. He died for my sin. He took my place. By believing in Jesus Christ as my Savior, God forgives all my sin. God gives to me the righteousness of Jesus Christ. God brings me into His family as a child of God. God gives to me a new heavenly home, a new life, a new set of values, a new way of thinking. And all of this is communicated to me through the Bible, God's written Word, and through His Son, Jesus Christ, God's living Word. This is what's in God's heart today. To communicate with you and me His sovereign plans and His desire for us to be in relationship with Him. Beyond the plans of our salvation, God has something more in His heart. God does have Solomon build the temple. God fills it with His presence, it says in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10. And Solomon has a prayer of dedication for the temple, God's dwelling place. Following, God, following Solomon's prayer, the Lord answers Solomon and speaks from the Lord's heart in 1 Kings chapter 9. Turn to 1 Kings chapter 9, please. Solomon has built the temple, a great day of celebration and dedication has taken place. And now the Lord responds to Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 9, verses 2 and 3. Follow along, please. The Lord appeared to Solomon a second time, and as he appeared to him, to Solomon, the Lord said to Solomon, I have heard your prayer and your plea which you have made before me. I have consecrated this house that you have built by putting my name there forever. My eyes and my heart will be there forever. My heart will be there perpetually. The heart of God is on His temple. We found that there is grief in the heart of God. We found that there is a longing of relationship in the heart of God by speaking to us about His plans. But now we find that the heart of God is on His temple. In these ancient times of Solomon, from Solomon to Ezekiel, over a 350-year period, the heart of God was on His temple. Through the majestic, magnificent times of the dedication of Solomon, with 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep sacrificed in a seven-day period, the bronze altar was too small to receive all of those offerings. There had to be areas where the offerings were made outside the temple. The great feasting day by all Israel. And then 220 years later, the corruption by King Ahaz. Moving the bronze altar, which is the centerpiece of the courtyard of the temple, he moves it off to the side. And he replaces it with an altar that he saw the king of Assyria had. And he perverts the worship of God there in the nation of Israel. And then 50 years later, after the reign of King Hezekiah, the awful king, the 55-year reign of his son, King Manasseh, the longest reign of any king in Israel or Judah's history, 
The temple had altars for the Canaanite gods, including Baal and Asherah, a female figure associated with fertility, and all the perverted practices of the gods of Canaan, including with Manasseh, the king, burning his sons in the valley of Hammon in Jerusalem. To finally, 80 years later, when the prophet of Ezekiel in captivity in Babylon sees the glory of the Lord move slowly, sadly, from the temple of Jerusalem. The heart of God has not taken his eyes and heart off of the temple. There would be a small temple built by Zerubbabel, urged on by the prophets Haggai and Zechariah. Ezra served at that temple for the Lord, and then later on, Nehemiah built a wall around the temple in the city of Jerusalem for its safety. But there was a greater temple on whom God has had his eyes and heart, a greater temple for a dwelling place of God among men. That greater temple is Emmanuel, God with us, God's beloved Son, Jesus Christ, who would say, Destroy this temple in three days, and I will raise it up again. And then John writes this commentary. The Lord was being mocked about the fact that a temple would be raised. That temple had been 40 and 6 years in being built. And then the comment by John, he was not speaking of that temple, he was speaking about the temple of his body, the dwelling place of God here among men, the temple that walked among men and did the great miracles spoke the great sermons, was compassionate and loving in all that he did. The love of God was, is, and will always be to his Son. Now the incarnate Son of God, Jesus Christ, God twice calls out from heaven, This is my beloved Son. The Lord Jesus says in John 3.35, The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. And in John 5.20, The Father loves the Son and shows Him all things that He Himself is doing. And finally, in this great chapter, chapter 17 of John, the Lord says, Father, I desire that they also whom You have given Me may be with Me where I am to see My glory You have given Me because you have loved me before the foundation of the world. God has always had his eye and heart on the temple, the dwelling place of God here on earth. Whether it was the tabernacle in the wilderness, or the temple built by Solomon, or the temple that was built by Zerubbabel, or the temple that was even made larger by Herod, where the Lord says, My Father's house shall be a house of prayer. In all of those temples, there was always in the mind of God the greater temple, the one who would live here, dwell here, where we could rejoice in His being among us, the Lord Jesus Christ. But today, God still has His heart on His temple. We are the temple of God. Let's listen to the following verses. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? 2 Corinthians 6.16 We are the temple of the living God. 
Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 21, you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into the temple of the Lord. In him you also are being built together a dwelling place by God the Spirit. We are the temple of God today. We are his dwelling place. Personally, individually, that's what it says in First and Second Corinthians. And corporately, as a body, the church of Jesus Christ is where He dwells today. And God's heart to this day is still on His temple. The heart of God is on His temple today, on you and me and on us as His church. Now we'll stop here today and continue in our thoughts in the heart of God next Sunday. Let's review what we've said here today. In the heart of God there is grief, lament, knowing the loss of a loved one because of sin, and He desires to have us saved from our lost condition by faith in Jesus Christ. In the heart of God is His sovereignty and His speaking or sharing about His sovereign plan. It's irresistible. A part of His plan is for us to be saved. He has given us a free choice to join in this plan of salvation or to not join and reject His plan. God has communicated this plan to us and is continuing to communicate the plan of God for us to become a part of His family. And then finally, the heart of God is on His temple. The temple of God today is for all of those who have trusted in Jesus Christ for salvation. He will never leave us or forsake us. How I thank God for His revealing to us what's in His heart through the Word of God. There's another expression. Let's have a heart-to-heart talk. Let's have a heart-to-heart talk. Dear ones, through the Scripture, God is wanting to have a heart to heart talk with you and me. Now God's laid it open for us this morning in these passages. Here's what's in my heart. Relationship. Salvation. Dwelling with you. And now God is waiting for us to open our heart to Him. Perhaps today we'll have a heart-to-heart talk with our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May we pray. Father, we thank You for 
what's in the heart of God. We are in your presence and we don't shake. We don't fear. We are not in trepidation at this moment because Jesus Christ has done all that is needed for our salvation and for our relationship with you. We even take by faith what it says there in Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Oh, dear God, how you have blessed us, blessed us from your heart. Continue to help us to learn, know, and respond to what's in your heart. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.